Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. The fifth chapter of Luke is an interesting chapter. Luke crams so much into those verses in that chapter. And the stories move rapidly one to another. I went through a series recently on how to read the Bible. And I mentioned in there keeping things in context. We probably more often than not read a single passage, a single verse, a single paragraph from the Bible. And everything that we comprehend about that is contained within that that limited passage or that single scripture or a couple of scriptures. And we often miss the big point because we don't see the context in which that was spoken. Now, at the end of this chapter, there is what we call the parable of the wineskins. Most of you have heard the parable of the wineskins, but we haven't always kept that in context, what led to him sharing this parable? That's questions we ought to be asking when we study the Bible for ourselves. What was the occasion? Why did he feel it necessary to share that? How does it, who did it apply to? How does it apply to us if it does at all? The first story in that fifth chapter is the call of three fishermen, Peter, James, and John. They had fished all night. They had taken nothing. And Jesus arrives at morning time, which would have been quitting time. And he says, I want to borrow your boat. Or he climbs on the boat. And it appears as though the boat had already been brought to shore and was prepared to be put in storage until the next day. And he climbs on the boat and said, I want you to cast out a little bit. They did. And he sat down in the boat, and he taught the people who were following him. Because Jesus had these groupies that followed him. They just wanted to see everything he did. They wanted to hear everything he said. I find that interesting in and of itself. That rather than standing on the shore and teaching them, he launched out into the boat, went out a little bit way, away from them. And that would have made it more difficult to be able to teach them from a boat that he was sitting in that perhaps was moved back and forth by the uh, activity of the water. But there he is on this boat away from the shore and turning around and teaching the people he was just on shore with. And it's quite possible that what he was doing, what he was teaching them, was leading up to what he actually did next. So he was be in the beginnings of an illustrated sermon whenever he did this. After he had taught the people, it's only speculation what he taught them, but is it possible he could have been teaching them about faith, obedience? I don't know. But at some point after he had taught the people, 
for a while. Then he tells Peter, let's take the boat out a little bit further into the water, launch out into the deep, and let's cast the nets. Peter objects on the basis that their fishing day or night is over. They've packed it up, they're done, and the fishing was rotten. And this would be the worst time to go fishing anyway. You missed the prime time when you missed the fishing at night. So he objects, but he has this nevertheless, and he obeyed. And when he did, the nets, they, they were filled. And Peter and James and John are so overwhelmed by this miracle that at that point, they begin to make a break from their secular employment and decided, we're going to give everything up and follow this man. That's how highly impacting this incident was in the lives of these men. He is worth following. It's worth abandoning everything we have to follow him. The second story, it moves quickly into this without uh, any further details on that first story, is the story of the healing of a leper who came to Jesus. And he said, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus was, and Jesus did. Touched the leper, made him whole. Third story, the healing of the paralyzed man that I preached on a few Sundays ago, who was born by four, brought to the house where Jesus is. The roof was torn up, they let him down, and Jesus addresses the condition of this paralyzed man, talking first about his sinful condition. And he says, thy sins be forgiven thee. Now, before he gets to the point of healing this paralyzed man, raising him up, he declares his sins to be forgiven. Do you notice how things flow in Scripture that we have developed things in the 21st century that we are accustomed to? We've developed the sinner's prayer and the Roman road and all kinds of things. And you, we, we feel like that we have to employ these things before people can get saved. But Jesus, being the Savior, and not using any of these tactics that, that we have developed today, just simply looks at a person who we don't have any record of this person saying, I am a sinner, please forgive me. We just don't have any record of his acknowledgement. Jesus just looks at him and says, I declare your sins forgiven. How simple is that? This offended the Pharisees. And this is where, in this chapter, we begin to pick up the reaction of the Pharisees to the ministry of Jesus. So they incredulously, they're incensed, they, they say, who is this man that he would speak this kind of blasphemy to them for just an ordinary man to take it upon himself to declare somebody's sins forgiven was considered blasphemous. They did not recognize Jesus to be the Son of God. They just thought he was an ordinary man, and he was taking upon himself powers that they did not believe that he had. So they had all kinds of, of theological problems with this. And they said, who can forgive sin except God alone? Good point. 
Now, Luke con- continues with the works of Jesus, and we've now picked up the ongoing irritation of the Pharisees with so many things that Jesus did. They were probably irritated with everything he did. We don't always see their reaction to everything that is recorded. So we have come to the part where he says, your sins are forgiven. And then after that, he heals this paralyzed man and he begins to walk. The Pharisees are unimpressed. They're still hung up on what he said. He said, your sins are forgiven. And they ignored the great miracle that took place in this man's life. You can see the blindness of the Pharisees in this whole scenario. The next story is the call of Levi, Matthew, more commonly known. Matthew, immediately, when he is called, sitting at the receipt of customs, he was a tax collector. He's called by Jesus, and his life is so overwhelmingly influenced by this man, which incidentally, let me throw this in, when you are truly in the presence of Jesus, when you are truly impacted by him, it demands a change in something in your life. That's the effect he has on people. So Matthew is called by Jesus to quit collecting taxes and follow him. And the first thing Matthew does is he throws a banquet. And he invites of particular note, the scripture says, more tax collectors. See, reach the people that you can reach. You are in a social circle that you have access to people's hearts and their minds that other people don't have, that I don't have. And so he's in the circle of tax collectors, and he throws a banquet and invites them and invites Jesus because it's been so revolutionary for him. And, of course, the life of a tax collector was questionable. And they were despised of society. And many of them were obviously unscrupulous, taking people for more taxes. You see, a tax collector made his living by collecting all that he could collect and paying what he was due to the government and keeping the profit. That was legal. But it was unscrupulous in the ways that they kept digging deeper into people's pockets to get their income, their paycheck. No wonder they were hated. So Matthew rounds up all his circle of friends that are tax collectors and a a number of other people there. But the Bible focuses on the tax collectors that were there and invites Jesus. I'm sure Matthew is wanting to introduce his friends to the revolutionary power, the changing power of Jesus Christ so they can experience what he has experienced as well. And then Luke focuses over on the Pharisees and their reaction to this. And they are offended that Jesus would dare attend this banquet thrown by a tax collector, put on by a tax collector, and populated by more tax collectors. You couldn't be in worse company, they thought. And if he 
appeared to be a priest. They, being priests, religious leaders, were being very pharisaical in saying we don't like to be seen hanging out with these kind of people. So what are you doing? See, they're always putting their expectations on other people. What are you doing hanging out with these kind of people? And they said, in the words of the Scripture, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus gave this classic answer. The healthy don't need a doctor. The sick need a doctor. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. And then the Pharisees launch into another objection and criticism of Jesus. They said, by the way, because when you're on a roll with criticisms, why stop? And I see this as a pastor sometimes. And people have a concern. All that sends chills up and down my back. Pastor, I have a concern. I just about go into paralysis sometimes. And the second thing that really bothers me is when they get by the concern and they have, and by the way, that one there will put the nail in the coffin. And by the way, while I've got you here, while I've got your ear, I've got a list So they do this. And by the way, John's disciples often fast and pray. Remember John, John the Baptist? He he had a following too. He had disciples. And they had noticed that John, his, his disciples, they were doing the right thing. They were fasting and praying. And that's good. And the Pharisees had disciples. And they said, our disciples fast and pray. Your disciples don't fast often enough. They don't pray often enough. Your disciples just like to eat and drink. I mean, they have been studying this for a while. They've got them all sized up. And Jesus responded to that objection by saying, Do the friends of the bridegroom fast while he was with them? And what what he's talking about, is if there was going to be a wedding party and people would normally have their religious functions and and disciplines and they would normally be fasting, but when you throw the party and you want people to come and party, you don't go and fast. If you're going to honor this person, you're going to do your fasting before or after, but you don't go to the banquet and fast. So he says, You know, when you're with the bridegroom, when you're there, and the purpose is, is to feast, you feast. And when he said, do friends of the bridegroom, when the bridegroom is with them, don't they eat? Do they they go there and fast and really pay honor to this guy? No, they go and they, they have a banquet. It's appropriate to do that. And, of course, we see the implications of this, that Jesus putting himself in the position of being the bridegroom and his people with him, that right now is an appropriate time to be eating and banqueting. There will come a time when it will be important for them to fast and pray. This is not the time to do this. And this was a direct hit. We don't see it without understanding some of the background of this. But Jesus' response was a direct hit 
against the Pharisees because they were well known to attend wedding parties and be the biggest glutton there. They could out-eat everybody. They could out-party the best of them. And when he's telling them this, when you go to wedding parties, you eat. And they understood the direct implication of his response to them. Commentator Adam Clark says of this passage, when Jesus gave that response to them about, about uh, when it's time to eat, you eat. And, and knowing that the Pharisees ate, Adam Clark says, this would have without any doubt caused a storm of laughter from those who knew the Pharisees were the biggest gluttons at any wedding event. Now they are really angry and humiliated. And Jesus immediately after all of this goes into the parable of the wineskins. And it's all because of questions, all the questions, and specific the la specifically the last question asked by the Pharisees, so the parable not only answers the most recent question, why don't your disciples fast like John's disciples, like the Pharisees' disciples, but the parable is an answer to all of their criticisms that they've had so far, we've read about in this chapter. Because all of the criticisms and all of the questions that the Pharisees kept bringing up against Jesus had one thing in common. And that is whatever Jesus did and whatever his disciples did angered them because they were basically saying, you are not doing things the way we do things around here. That was the root at all of their criticism. You're not playing by our rules. You are doing things that we find offensive to our religious belief. And everything that Jesus did and everything he taught his disciples seemed to eventually run contrary to hundreds of years of tradition and the Pharisees were offended. And it's against this backdrop that Jesus gives us this parable of the wineskins. Luke 5, they said unto him, Why did the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees, but yours just eat and drink? And he said, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. And then he spoke this parable and said, No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new makes a tear. And also, the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined. New wine has to be put in new wineskins, and both are preserved. And no one... Having drunk old wine, immediately desires new, for he says, the old is better. Now, let's unpack this parable today. First of all, Jesus speaks in this about the process of change. Let's take that last verse that I read. No one, having drunk wine, 
old wine immediately desires new wine. He says the old is better. Do not take that as something that Jesus is saying ought to be. It's not an ought, it's an is. There's a difference. He doesn't say you ought to like the old wine better than the new. He says the way people are, having been accustomed to the old, their first reaction is going to be not to like the new. He's observing human behavior, not recommending behavior for us. That's the reason we have to read these things carefully. So Jesus addresses basic human behavior. We don't immediately like change. The first thing we do when something comes along that is different than what we're accustomed to is we say, I don't like that. I run into that a lot, even within my own family. And there might be some food that I will introduce to a a grandchild or anybody in my household. And the first thing when they see it is, they say, I don't want that. Why not? I don't like it. And what do I say? Have you ever tasted it? No. Come on, people. You know, you've done it. This is human behavior. This is what Jesus is pointing out. Then how do you know you don't like it? Because... There's no rhyme or reason to this. It is the basic expression of human behavior. I don't like what I don't know. What I know, I like. And what I like is better than anything else that could possibly ever come along. Because I've discovered it all. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, it's very typical for people who have drunk old wine not to immediately desire to do. Now, he did not say, notice, notice how carefully this is worded. He didn't say they will never like it. He said the initial reaction is not to immediately like it. And what is Jesus talking about? He's talking about, and we get to the, the point number two, which is my last point, the application of this parable. He's talking to the Pharisees, and he is confronting a people and, a re, and an ancient religion. He's confronting this. He is confronting a religion, Judaism, that as Jesus is bringing in the new, the old must be faded out. Period. It has served all of its usefulness There is nothing left of any value to this old system. It must be retired. Can you imagine confronting centuries of religion, ancient people, and beginning to introduce to them, just little by little, this basic concept. Your religion has got to change. And now you begin to see why the Pharisees are offended. And why they struggle with everything Jesus is doing. Because he has already tipped his hand 
by his behavior, by his instruction to his disciples, by his disregard for their legalities. And he's beginning to show them that we are drawing away from the old Judaistic religion and we're introducing something new. Of course they were offended. And that's why Jesus primarily gave the parable of the wineskins to tell them two things. Number one, you don't sew a new piece of cloth to an old cloth and expect it to endure. It's just going to, it's, it's not going to last. And he immediately followed up with a, a second illustration, which just amplifies the first one and agrees with it. And that is, let's talk wineskins now. You don't pour new wine into old wineskins because the new wine will begin to ferment at some point and put stress on the old wineskin bags, and it cannot stand the stress of the new wine, and it will burst. So the wisdom is that you don't just patch a cloth and expect it to be as good as new. It might get you by But we realize that's only temporary and it's not going to last. And number two, you don't use the old wineskins to contain the new wine. And the new wines for the Pharisees represented the new religious system that Jesus was bringing, the new specifically truths that Jesus was teaching that the Pharisees were struggling with. They kept wanting to argue against him with old truths. And he was bringing new truths to them, and he was telling them, you cannot receive new truths because you're a bunch of old bags. This was the man who taught his disciples in ways that did not say, now let's honor Judaism. But he taught his disciples there is a way of loving God and serving him that goes beyond your old traditional religions. And he, he gave his followers a lot of leeway. They walked through the grain fields. It says cornfields, it was wheat. And they would pluck the ears of grain and rub it between their hands because that was a crude individual way of threshing. Just remove all the hull, get all that stuff off there, and then end up with a, a palm full of seeds and pop the seeds in your mouth and eat it. It was nutritious. The Pharisees saw that, and they were so bound by their old law and old tradition that they called that work. On the Sabbath, they are threshing. They are working. Why do your disciples work on the Sabbath? And Jesus was trying to replace the old, stiff, inflexible traditions of of religion with something new that says, you know, really, in in this new era, you're going to find out God doesn't care about silly little things like this. It doesn't matter anymore. I'm releasing you from the bondage of that kind of religion. He shows up late at sacred feasts, and it just irritates the Pharisees to pieces that he's not on time like a good priest ought to be. He claims he knows God. He claims he's seen God. All that threw them into a tailspin. He claimed God was his father, and they couldn't hardly deal with that, how blasphemous that really was. He's prophesied the destruction of their temple. Now they're livid. They loved their temple. 
He claimed himself to be the fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. That got his ministry off to a rocky start when he stood up in his own synagogue. Among his own people. And he read from Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And they're with him. This is a good passage. They've read it many times. Amen. Go for it. Until he gets to the end. And he closes the book. And he says, this day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. They ran him out of town. He offended them so many different ways. He ate with sinners. His disciples had the audacity to eat without first washing their hands. And as far as the Pharisees were concerned, they probably cannot go to heaven if they do that. He was caught touching lepers. And that offended the Pharisees. You shouldn't touch unclean people. Don't you know the ceremonial laws? He was caught ministering to a woman. Socially, that was unacceptable. But his new religion didn't have all the bondages of the old one. He was not a very good practitioner of Judaism in so many ways. And they were constantly offended because he was constantly disrespecting their religion. They despised Jesus who kept straying outside of their lines of the religious traditions. Now, when Jesus was confronting this generation with the reality that their religious system was just about to die, it's breathing its last gasp, it had fulfilled its purpose. He demonstrated first he could step outside of those boundary lines and still heal people. Evidently, God did not hold it against him. Evidently, you can serve God without serving these legalistic laws, and God still loves you. His grace and His Spirit is still up on you. But they didn't like that. They wanted God's grace and God's mercy and God's power to be in coordination with the old laws. And the more you obeyed them, the more godly you were. And He was just demonstrating He could break those laws and still do more power by the hand of God than all of the Pharisees put together with their law. He did this so it would be clear after his death and resurrection that he had already shown them he was retiring the law. He did that so we would know. He didn't come here to to obey the Judaistic law so after he died we would be confused and say if we've got to be like Jesus, we have to obey Judaism. We have to live by that. He came and began to break it. So after he went away we realized that's not the direction he wanted us to go. He wanted us to go in a totally new direction, away from the bondages that used to grip these people. He predictably aroused them to anger. They did not want to change. They were offended by change. They saw themselves as protectors of their traditional religion and bound by oaths and allegiance to fight against anybody who threatened the integrity of their religion. So Jesus tells them this little story of the parable of the wineskins. And the whole point for the Pharisees, for the Jewish teachers, is to help them understand change is coming. Change is inevitable. The new is better than the old. And you're going to have to prepare yourself if you're going to be able to accept the new that is coming. For the Pharisees, this 
parable was this powerful statement about changing their entire religious system. And furthermore, Jesus tells the parable to help them to understand clearly that he was not recommending that the new religion be a hybrid of the two. A complete different religion. You can't sow the old to the new. It's not going to work. You can't pour the new truths into the old bottles. It's not going to work. His parable demonstrated to them, do away with all that was before. We're starting afresh. We're starting anew. Do you know how hard it would be for people who were raised in that for generations to suddenly come along and say, you've got to lay it down and forsake it and forget it all. Don't bring it along. Don't bring it with you. It was hard to do because they even began to try to bring those practices into the New Testament church. You remember the difficulties they had in the book of Acts? Whenever Paul was going around and he was finding people that were trying to bring the old Judaistic practices of circumcision in there, and they had neglected to understand what Jesus told them by a simple parable, you can't join the old to the new. I've got a new way of doing things. Don't bring your favorites from the past forward. And don't try and, and accommodate the new with your old vessels. You've got to be a new creation yourself. They, they were offended by what he brought because what he brought was fresh. It was bold. It was outside the boundary lines. It was liberating. It was a whole new approach that scrapped everything they were formally taught in Judaism about what it meant to honor God and serve Him. I, I almost feel sorry for them having to go through this transformation. I understand how difficult that really would be. But the old guard would want to despise Jesus and His disciples. They would want to excommunicate them. They would want to persecute them. That's the application to the Pharisees in their face. You've got to change. You've got to make a complete change. Partial change is not going to work. Change the whole system. I'm going to teach you a better way. No longer the, the, the execution uh, of the laws, no more the obedience to the, the ceremonial laws. And, and you have to understand, uh, along with, with these laws in the Old Testament, you had ceremonial laws. It didn't apply to the whole world. It applied to the, the Jews. You had civil laws that just applied to their culture, their government. And you had moral laws that applied to all humanity. And Jesus came along and he said, we're getting rid of the ceremonial laws. We're getting rid of the civil laws. But the moral code stands. That's important, people, because as we struggle with change, we have to be just as discriminating ourselves. What things really do need to be changed? What things, it doesn't matter that we change. And what things are so valuable, we dare not change. We have to understand those or we may make a mess of it. Concerning our salvation and the application of this passage to that, it, it has to do with how we are expected to make a clean break with our old life and begin a new life in Jesus. How many of you people here today? It's a simple question. You realize that since you have taken Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, that you are living a different style of life than you used to live. Because it's changed. That's what this is all about. You can't come to Jesus and not change. You can't just take him on as a new part of your lifestyle. It's change. We have programs on TV about makeovers. 
making over a house, making over a kitchen, making over people, total makeovers. But what we're talking about in, in terms of the Christian, it's not just a makeover. It's not just a remodeling job for us. Because Jeremiah tells us that the heart is wicked beyond repair. So we're not asking God to come and repair our heart. It's ruined. It's defiled by sin. It's broken. It's irreparable. It's destroyed. We, we go with the words of the psalmist. Create in me a clean heart, O God. You cannot as a Christian. You cannot as a Christian expect God to use your old heart. And you keep doing the same things you used to do. Just in moderation, maybe. Same old attitude you used to have. There has to be a change. There has to be a revolution. Old things are passed away. And behold, all things are become new. That's the transformation of salvation in Jesus Christ. It takes a creative miracle. You can't bring your broken vessel to God and expect Him to patch it and fill it. You can't bring your shattered heart and expect Him to glue it back together. There's an old incompatible attitude embedded in that heart that says, I still have tasted the old and I like the old and I'm not getting rid of the old. I'll just kind of learn to incorporate the new with it. Your heart is ruined. It's poisoned. It's bent. It's broken. It's no good. Have God take your heart. And first of all, He's not going to do this if you don't ask Him for it. He's not the God to go around and jerk your heart out and give you a new one if you have not asked Him sincerely, God, I want a new heart. If you want to come to God and you want to keep your old heart, you're going to continue to struggle as a Christian every day that you try to live this life because it doesn't work. You put the new truths in it and you can't contain the new truths. They offend you. You cannot process them. You can't just sew on a piece of cloth to plug up the old tattered hole you have in your soul. You've got to come and say, God, I am sick of being who I am and who I used to be. I don't want to be this anymore. Create in me a clean heart, a new heart, a right heart. You've got to get rid of the old attitude that still has an appetite for the old. Number three, the application is the concerning the evolution, the cultural evolution of the church. And this is where I remind you of understanding our core values. People are protective of their religious beliefs. Have you noticed that? Of course you have. What we believe, we treat it like it's sacred. We defend our beliefs against ridicule and mockery, and we tend to see our beliefs as fixed and eternal, resisting any changes as being corruptive to the purity of our beliefs. Now, in Christianity, there are certain things that we know are fixed. God has revealed himself to us as the eternal creator of all things. That's fixed. You can't change that. He's told us he is the same yesterday and today and forever. That's fixed truth. You can't, you can't change that. His word is unchanging. The Bible is fixed. It does not lend itself 
to being updated to accommodate the drifting culture. His word is fixed. It's permanent. It doesn't need updating. And I, I've, I've preached uh, about this all my life, but I never really dreamed I would live to see the day when people would be so stupid and excuse me for using the word. I never thought I would see the day when people would be so stupid as to suggest we have to change the Bible because it is out of step with time today. It is dated. It is irrelevant. But they are doing that today. Thy word, O Lord, is established in the heavens forever. God's moral code is fixed. I said don't confuse that moral code with the old civil and ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. That some... uh, divisions some little groups of christians are still trying to pick up some old testament stuff and live by it how miserable can you be trying to live by that old stuff that jesus came and wiped it all away said get rid of that it's just in the way of loving god just get rid of it and we still have churches today that are trying to cling to parts of those and they read the Old Testament, and the Old Testament gives the Jews some outlines, some, some restrictions, some regulations, some law about how they live their life, and they say, that's the way I ought to live if I want to love God. They're, 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 they're getting caught up in, in bondage. Jesus didn't recommend to us that we fulfill the laws of Judaism. He set us free from that junk. Nine of the Ten Commandments are moral laws. One of them is not a moral law. And that's the, the law to remember the Sabbath, to keep it holy. Now, we do believe that we honor God by, by setting a day aside specifically, emphatically for Him. But we better honor God by making every day a day that honors Him, by, the, by our lifestyle. That's the way we really honor God. But the, the Ten Commandments, uh, worship God only, because uh, idolatry is an immoral, evil thing. Worship God only. Don't have any graven images of other gods. Don't use His name carelessly. Honor your parents. That's a moral thing. It's, it's, uh, it's understanding authority and submission to authority and the blessing of the family that God has established. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet what belongs to others. Those are all moral things. And they don't pass away with the passing of the Old Testament law because those are enduring and those are eternal. I'm going to go back to that one phrase that Jesus said was so was so significant. He's uh, no one having drunk old wine immediately desires new. For he says the old is better. Right there, Jesus nails the problem. We are reluctant to change. In this parable, Jesus clearly implies the superiority of the new to the old. The old had a had a task, had a, had a duty, had a purpose, it's over. But the new is better. But he said to the Pharisees, your problem is you've tasted the old, and in your own prejudice, your own blindness, your own stubbornness, you think nothing can ever be better. 
than the old. I'm telling you, I've got new stuff for you. And you're going to have to be a new vessel to be able to receive this without self-destructing. They could not see that what Christ brought was so far superior to their old dead ritualistic religion. They had already tasted it and they were spoiled. They hadn't tasted the new, but they don't like it. They already made up their mind the old is the best that's ever going to be. Now, we get pretty protective of our own religious traditions as well. Sometimes people focus more on keeping things the way they were. Even at the risk of dying out than to risk making changes. But the honest truth is this. This is the part that hurts. Is if you've ever noticed the way things used to be that we cherish so much, that perfect age is always one generation old. The way I remember it. That's always the ideal. Things are, That's not the way that I grew up. That's not the way I remember church. That's not the way. It's just a few decades. And you just happened to be born in that one decade that was perfect. And every decade before that and since that is no good. Do you realize, people, we've got to use a little logic here. Do you realize that the church of the 21st century, the 20th century, the 19th century, the, the, the church of the 19th century would not recognize the church of the 20th century? The church of the century, 20th century says, I don't understand this new church. I've, this is not at all. Let's expand this out. Do you realize the church of the time of, of the Reformation, of the time of Martin Luther, that church would not recognize the church of the 16th century? This, this, it's, no, it's no longer what it used to be. Do you realize that the church of the New Testament would not recognize you as being a legitimate church? Do you realize that? And we always think, boy, if it just the way it was 20 years ago, we would be okay. The New Testament church doesn't know who you are. They didn't have buildings like this. They had to borrow the Jewish synagogue just to worship. They had nothing. They met in homes because they had nothing. They didn't have worship teams. They didn't have hymnals. They didn't. Have, they, they would not work. They would not recognize you as being the extension of the church. This many centuries later. Who are you people? What are you doing? Change comes. They didn't have church service. They met in somebody's home to discuss this new experience about finding uh, uh, Jesus and, and the resurrection power on him raised on the third day and, and how he impacted their life. And what are they going to do to, to uh, deal with the persecution that's coming? They gathered to talk about those things because they were still mesmerized by this whole ministry of Jesus. And they get... They would gather together. They would talk about, what are we going to do next? They would pray, God, help us. We don't know where we're going with this. And that was, that was church. Prayer meetings. So what are we going to do? I want to suggest to you, God wants to provide new wine. We've talked about the application of the Pharisees and the application to salvation, but the application to the church, I, I, I firmly believe with all my heart, God wants to provide new wine for this church. 
in, in a primary sense, he already did provide new wine for the church when he established the new covenant. But there's another sense in which God wants to do a new thing for today. And I, I think too often we sell ourselves short and we sell God short. When we read something in the Bible and say, oh God, would you do that again today? Is that all you want? You want him to repeat something he already did 2,000 years ago? Why? Why don't you ask him to do a new thing? He, he, he's not running out of ideas, I promise you. He didn't use them all up as recorded in Scripture. God, can you do a new thing in our church? And God says, I can. Can your vessel hold it? And if we're so stuck on the 1950s or the 1960s or the 1970s or the 20th century or the 19th century, it's an old vessel that can't hold what new God wants to bring. He can pour out the new into new vessels. He isn't interested in recycling what he did for another generation in another century. He's not interested in recycled rain. He wants to prepare us as new vessels to receive what he has for today. He doesn't want us to waste time saying the old was so much better than the new. He wants us to anticipate God do a new thing. Take us out of our box. Get us to thinking totally different than we've been taught to think. Than we've been limited in thinking. We don't need a spiritual makeover. We need a new thing from God. We need new wine. We need a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I just wonder is our church ready? Is our vessel ready? And I wonder is our attitude open? to what God really wants to do. Worship team, would you come?